scripture this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, beginning in chapter 4, in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days after his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Thanks, Jeremy. Let's uh, ask God's help as we uh, think about this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Hebrews as we continue to work through it. We pray that in the passage that we have today that we might hear great encouragement for there is such encouragement here, that we might uh, leave from our time of worship changed and motivated to live for you because of your great love for us. So no matter what kind of week we've had, no matter what kind of mood we're in, uh, may we hear you speak to us now, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So if I had to name my favorite books from 2020, as some of you know, in the short list would certainly have been this book, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers by Dane Ortland. A group of us here at the church read it together online in a book group last spring. I'm excited that I'm getting to read it again uh, this year as our Theology on Tap men's group uh, just started it this past week. And in the sleeve cover of the book, uh, it's described this way, quote, Christians know what Jesus Christ has done, but who is he? What is his deepest heart for his people, weary and faltering on their journey toward heaven? Jesus said he is gentle and lowly in heart. This book reflects on these words, opening up a neglected yet central truth about who he is for sinners and sufferers alike. Chapter four in Ortland's book is entitled, Able to Sympathize, and it begins this way. He says, the way the Puritans would write books is to take a single Bible verse, wring it dry for all the heart-affecting theology they could find, and two or three hundred pages later send their findings to a publisher. 
Thomas Goodwin's The Heart of Christ is no different. And the verse being wrung dry is Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And Thomas Goodwin's burden in this book was to convince disheartened Christians that even though Jesus Christ is now in heaven, he is just as open and tender in his embrace of sinners and sufferers as he was while here on earth. That the risen Lord Jesus, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus, alive and well in heaven, is not somehow less approachable and less compassionate than he was when he walked this earth. In the book, Goodwin explains why he picked Hebrews 4.15 to explore this point. He wrote, wrote this, I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks his heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it towards sinners. And that so sensibly that it does, as it were, take our hands and lay them upon Christ's breast and let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us. Even now he is in glory. The very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that may discourage them from the consideration of Christ's heart toward them now in heaven. It's writing in the 17th century. You can kind of get a feel for that, but I think you get the gist of what he's saying here. Well, as we continue our series in, in Hebrews, our passage today includes Hebrews 4.15, and therefore it has the potential to be huge encouragement to us as we look at it. As, as it takes, as it were, our hands and places them on the chest of the risen Christ so that, as Ortland writes in his book, like a stethoscope letting us hear the vigorous strength of a physical beating heart, our hands let us feel the vigorous strength of Christ's deepest affections and longings for us. And that's a wonderful gift at the best of times. But in the context of this sermon called the book of Hebrews, it is pure balm for the soul. Last week, if you were here, if you listened to the sermon, as we looked at chapter 3 and part of chapter 4, we, we had some very stern warnings about not giving up on our faith, about the consequences, the serious consequences of falling away into unbelief, as had done the generation of the Israelites, whom God had delivered from Egypt through the Exodus. They had fallen away despite having the promises of God given to them, despite having seen that the awesome evidence of God's faithfulness to them. And the preacher says to his audience, and indeed to us, don't make the same deadly error. You have God's promises. You've seen God's faithfulness. Don't fall away. And now in, in the sermon, in order to strengthen our motivation to stay faithful to God, the preacher gives us further reason why indeed we can trust God and love God. And the basis of that trust and love is that we have a high priest who is merciful and compassionate, whose name is Jesus. Preacher actually here is beginning the main central section of the sermon, which is going to, going to run all the way to chapter 10, verse 25. And in, in this section, he's going to focus on the radical importance of Jesus as our high priest, and in particular, how Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical, Aaronic, Old Testament priesthood. Now, if that all sounds double Dutch to you, hopefully over today and over the coming weeks, it'll become somewhat clearer. But here's what we want to see in the first section of this central section, 
It is that Jesus is worthy of all our trust and love because he is our compassionate and merciful high priest. I'm going to look at our passage in something of a reverse order, looking at chapter 5 before chapter 4, and looking at it in, under three headings. First of all, the original high priest. Secondly, the better high priest. And thirdly, the appropriate response. Jesus is worthy of all our trust and love because he is our compassionate and merciful high priest. So first of all, the original high priest. Part of the reason I began this morning with Ortland and Goodwin is because as we enter into this central section, there are all these references to priests and sacrifices, and it can all feel very foreign to us. It might be tempting to sort of tune out or to let our eyes start to glaze over as these details are read to us. You might think to yourself, you know, that the priest, the sacrificial system, that's for theologians. That's for really serious Christians to grapple with. I have a simple faith. I, I just don't feel the need to ponder deeply such things. But let me suggest to you that what the preacher covers in this central section is at the very heart of Christianity. If you and I don't understand the significance of Jesus as our great high priest, then we don't understand what it means to be a Christian. What the preacher does for us in chapter 5 here is to begin to explain the original conception of high priest as found in the Old Testament. So look again with me at chapter four, 5, verses 1 to 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now notice that the preacher here lays out three essential qualifications for one who might aspire to be the high priest in the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. First, the three being solidarity, sympathy, and selection. High priest, first of all, was in solidarity with his people. He was one of them. Preacher tells us that the one appointed had to be a human being because they had been chosen to represent human beings before God, so they had to be in solidarity with them. Secondly, the priest was to be in sympathy with the people, such that he could deal gently with them, we read here. The word translated deal gently here was used to define a course of, 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 of action or conduct, which was kind of the middle course between anger and apathy, between being incensed at sin and having a sort of laissez-faire attitude towards sin. And the high priest was able to follow that track, at least in part because of his own weakness. That is, he knew what it was himself to sin. Verse 3, the preacher highlights how the, the high priest had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin, as well as the sin of the people. And because of that weakness, the high priest was moved to be compassionate and sensitive with others, demonstrating sympathy to them. And then the third qualification concerned selection. The high priest was the product of divine selection. God was the one who chose the high priest for this role. So you couldn't wake up one morning and having eaten your cornflakes said, you know, I think I'm going to be high priest today. And put a, a sign on your front door saying, uh, high priest lives here. 
because only those appointed by God could fulfill the role. So the three essential qualifications for one who might aspire to be a high priest were solidarity, sympathy, and selection. And the preacher then shifts his focus in verses 5 to 6 to move from the original high priest to the better high priest. And so he writes this, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The preacher here actually follows a similar pattern to that which he used in chapter 3 when he was comparing Jesus to Moses. That is, he begins here by stressing some continuity between the Old Testament high priest and Christ with the selection process, the selection qualification. That is, both were appointed to their office by God. But it's at that point that the similarities between the two priesthood offices end. Because at that point, the preacher starts to comment, commentate on the ascension and the coronation of Jesus in heaven. I don't know if you've ever watched the footage of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation all the way back in 1953. But if you do, you'll, you'll hear the reverential hushed terms of, tones of Richard Dimbleby, who was the commentator at the time, describing what was happening, explaining the, the symbolism of everything going on. Well, the preacher here sort of takes on that commentary role for Jesus's coronation here. And for his commentary, he refers to two Psalms. Jesus has sat down on his throne and has heard the Father say to him, Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But the commentator continues, Not only has Jesus been crowned as Messiah, as king, his ascension to the throne is also the moment of his ordination as priest. Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to go into much detail about this order of Melchizedek right now because the preacher's going to spend all of chapter 7 on it, so don't be, be sure not to miss that. But there is one thing worth pointing out here at this point, and that is that in the Old Testament, the roles of the king and the priest were very carefully kept apart. The king represented God to the people, whereas the priest represented the people to God. The priest, sort of as we've seen already, was more the caretaker, the, the sympathizer, the one who identified and sympathized with the people. The king was the, the person of truth. And so practically speaking, you never would have thought it possible to bring those two roles together. But all the way back in Genesis 14, the first book of the Bible, there was this mysterious character called Melchizedek in whom the two roles were merged. He was both a king and a priest. He's not mentioned again in the Old Testament till Psalm 110, the psalm that is quoted here by the preacher, where the psalmist announces that the future Messiah will indeed be like Melchizedek. He will be a priest, but not in the Levitical line of priests that run through the Old Testament. He's in a different line of priesthood. He's the priest king after the order of Melchizedek and crowned and ordained as such at his ascension. So Jesus meets the qualification for high priest, and then some, in, in his selection. And then in verses 7 to 10, we see he also was in solidarity with his people. 
We read, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Back in chapter 2 in Hebrews, the preacher spoke of how Jesus shared with us in being flesh and blood. Well, here the preacher seeks to expand on that thought as he points us to the truth that as one who was fully human like us, Jesus was plagued with the sorrows and heartaches of human existence just like we are. That he offered up prayers and petitions during his life on earth because he, like any other human being, was completely dependent on God, that he looked to God to meet his needs and to answer his pleas, please, praying with loud cries and tears. And the preacher here intimates that such sorrow and tears were a regular experience for Jesus, happening, as he says here, in the days, plural, days of his flesh. That regular experience of sorrow and grief would have come to its climax, surely, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus cries out in anguished prayer to the Father. And on the cross, as he calls out that opening line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The preacher here wants his listeners, who were themselves experiencing suffering and persecution, to know that Jesus knew suffering very well, that they weren't encountering anything that was foreign to Jesus while he was here on earth, that through his human experience, Jesus was in solidarity with his people. Now, before we move on to Jesus' third qualification, what do we make of the rest of these verses here, chapter 5, verses 7 to 10? For example, the preacher says that Jesus offered up prayers to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. You might think of Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we read that Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup being the cup of God's wrath and judgment that Jesus was to drink in dying on the cross. The preacher here says Jesus' prayer to be saved from death was heard. And yet Jesus did die, right? He had to die to be the sacrifice for our sins if we were ever to be forgiven, if we were ever to be healed and given the gift of eternal life. But the preacher's not lying because God did still answer Jesus' prayer to save him from death. He did it by three days later raising Jesus from the dead and delivering Jesus from death through death. And then what are we to make of verses 8 to 9 here? That Jesus, although he was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered and was made perfect. Preacher is not saying here that Jesus was somehow disobedient and became obedient. That he somehow passed from imperfection to perfection. Rather, it's the idea that Jesus arrived through his humanity at a new stage of experience. Having passed through this school of suffering. You know, when suffering strikes in our lives, we're inclined to do everything that we can in order to avoid it, to find another path where there's joy and where there's refreshment. But Jesus, however, learned how to trust God and do his will even in the midst of suffering. So that after asking 
for the cup to be taken from him in Gethsemane, what did Jesus pray? He prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He demonstrated his perfect obedience, his learned obedience, in obedience all the way to the cross. And so, as the preacher says, being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Jesus met the essential high priest qualifications of selection and solidarity. And as we go back to Thomas Goodwin's favorite verse, we see how Jesus gloriously satisfies the qualification of sympathy. Look again at chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 5, we saw how the Old Testament high priest was able to sympathize with the people because of his own weakness, namely that he, he knew what it was himself to sin just like the people did. Here, the preacher now uses this double negative to forcefully assert that Jesus identifies himself as a priest with those who feel helpless and sympathizes with our weaknesses. However, it's not in the same way as the Old Testament high priest for the simple reason that Jesus was without sin. And some of us might be tempted at this point to think, well, you know, I, I appreciate Jesus' good intentions, and I, I understand how he wants to help me and support me, but he really can't, can he? Because he never knew what it was like to sin. And amongst my many weaknesses, we might say, my most devastating, I know, is my weakness of sin. And he doesn't know what that's like. Now, you're right that Jesus never sinned. I mean, it says that clearly here. But you'd be incorrect to think that he can't, therefore, identify with your experience. Because as the preacher says here, Jesus was tempted just as we are. He experienced the full range of human challenges and temptations, but in the process never sinned. And that means he actually understands the pressures that you face better than anybody else. Listen to how C.S. Lewis helpfully explains this. He says, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. It's because Jesus was tempted as we are but was without sin, that he's able, as the preacher says here, to sympathize completely with our weaknesses. So here's where I want you to, to put your hands with my hands on the chest of the risen Lord Jesus to feel the deep strength of his affections and his longings for us. Because you see, Jesus lived like us in the sense that he had a human body, a human mind, a human soul, with all their limitations except for sin. And if I can put it like this, his instrument, in that sense, was the same as, as ours. If you have two pianos in the same room and you strike a note on one, 
the same note will gently respond on the other, even though it wasn't touched by anyone's hand. It's what musicians call sympathetic resonance. And you see, Jesus Christ's instrument was just like ours in every way. But then having lived and died and risen again, he took that instrument, that body, to heaven with him. It's his priestly body. And now when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, guess what happens? It resonates in his. There's no note of human experience that doesn't play on Christ's exalted human instrument. Jesus doesn't just imagine how we feel. He feels it with us. He shares the experience. Every time you've been marginalized or betrayed or insulted or abused, he feels it with you. Every time you felt overwhelmed by loneliness or by grief, by life itself, he felt it with you. There isn't a note that we can play. There's not a melody or a dirge. There's no minor key. There's no discordant note that doesn't evoke a sympathetic resonance in Jesus. And that sympathy isn't just limited to compassion and empathy on Jesus' part. It also denotes his ability to help us in our weaknesses and our afflictions so that when the lash is falling on you and me, he rushes in so it falls upon him as well. And when you're treated with contempt, he steps in to take the humiliation with you. And when you're bruised, he feels the pain. There is in Jesus' high priestly sympathy this significant element of active help. It's an amazing thing. So what does the preacher here say should be our response to this great high priest, Jesus? Well, he gives us two things in two let us statements. The preacher to the Hebrews likes his lettuces, so keep an eye out for them as we go through the book. Here's the first one in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since we've now seen in his sermon that Jesus is better than the prophets, he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he grants a better rest than Joshua, and now he's a better high priest than the Aaronic high priest. He says, let's not stop holding fast to our confession. And by that, he doesn't mean mere mental adherence to a set of doctrines about Jesus. He's talking about the absolute full-on commitment of our lives, not just a phrase that falls off our tongue. Preacher said in chapter 5, verse 10, that we looked at a moment ago, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to whom? To all who obey him. That is, to all who hold fast our confession. But then here's the second lettuce in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the Old Covenant, the only person who was permitted to approach the presence of God was the high priest. And even he could only approach God in the most holy place of the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement under specified conditions. But look at what the high priestly ministry of Jesus has achieved for us now. We now have immediate access to God and the freedom to boldly draw near to him continually. The first part of this verse could be translated, let us, draw, let us draw near again and again and again and again, continually and continu continually. We could do it anytime. 
And draw near to what? He says, to the throne of grace where we receive mercy and we find grace to help in time of need. So we receive mercy for all our past failures and grace to meet our present and our future needs. We receive the full heart of God as he mercifully meets us in our sin and weaknesses and heals us. And we receive the full hands of God, God's grace, his unmerited favor and loving regard that just keeps coming and coming and coming. And it's a grace that keeps coming at just the right time. That's actually another way that verse 16 can be translated at the end that brings this out even more where we might say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace for a well-timed help. That is, God's grace to us is shown not just in how he answers, but in the timing of how he answers. That the scheduling of his gracious help is not according to our clock, because we always want it five minutes earlier, but it's according to HST, heavenly standard time, which is the perfect time, designed always to strengthen our love for him and our trust in him. So there's Thomas Goodwin's contemporary, another Puritan, John Owen put it, help being a thing that regards want is always excellent, but it's coming in season, puts a crown upon it. Jesus is worthy of all our trust and love because he's our compassionate and merciful high priest. A few days ago, an Irish pastor friend of mine linked to a Twitter thread about Dane Ortland's book that I mentioned at the beginning. And the author of the thread wrote this. It's got a bit of a long quote, but listen to what he says. He says, since it was published last April, Gentle and Lowly has sold over 160,000 copies with no signs of slowing down anytime soon. I've never known a book that captivated my reformed evangelical tribe and soothed as many wounds as this one. And I can't help but ask why. Why has this message resonated with so many? While there are almost certainly lots of answers, I think I know at least one of them. I was raised in a very conservative expression of Christianity, high view of scripture, intense opposition to sin, resolute determination to live purely. I've known my whole life why Jesus had to die. Somehow, though, I never actually reckoned with why he wanted to. Only recently have I realized that most of my life I've looked at Jesus through the lens of my sin. I've been thankful for his mercy, but I've thought of that mercy as a fund that Jesus replenishes and I regularly deplete. That's how I felt about how he feels about me. I realized that before I read Ortland's book, I had never really reckoned with the love of God. And doing that broke something in me. That's why, in part, I think this book has borne such incredible fruit so far. Far, I don't think I'm alone here. I think there are other theologically serious, sovereignty serious, holiness serious people who've come to terms with much biblical teaching except the love of Jesus. And I think you can only walk with a spiritual, emotional limp like that for so long before you realize how tired defeated, and afraid you really are. So I'm very, very thankful for this book, Getting Out to So Many People. It's water for those of us on the verge of heat exhaustion. And the question is, how on earth did we leave these truths behind in the first place? End quote. And I don't know that those words will resonate with all of us, but I think they'll resonate with some of us. 
can tell you that they resonate with me. Friends, this week, keep your hands on the Hebrews 4.15 chest of the risen Lord Jesus, where you can feel the strength of his deepest affections and longings for you. Jesus is worthy of all our trust and all our love because he is our compassionate and merciful high priest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're humbled even just to begin to understand your love for us, your identity with us, your solidarity, your sympathy, that as you identify with us and all the things that we go through, you not only feel those things with us, but you help us in those situations. And so may we be people who run boldly to your throne of grace, who come with confidence, because you are the dispenser of ongoing, flowing grace and mercy that we need. Your heart towards us is a heart of love. Forgive us for thinking anything else and help us to live out of the reality of that love in this coming week, for we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.